So it's week number two of this series, The Bad Boys of Easter. And usually when people approach the Easter story in churches, we do, you know, a Palm Sunday thing, we do a Good Friday, and then we do an Easter Sunday, and that's, that's great, and you know, it's very, very good that we do that, but I'm coming in on a bit of a bizarre angle uh, this year, talking about three men in the Easter story. When I say Easter, I mean the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not talking about eggs and bunnies. I'm talking about the passion of the Christ here. And um, I don't have anything against eggs and bunnies, actually. I find them quite cute, but that's not what the Easter story is about. Um, I'm coming at it at an angle where we're looking at three men who walked and talked with Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, sometimes a little bit of time, sometimes a long time, and they left the story unconverted. They left the story uh, uh, against God, rebelled against God, rebelled against Jesus for various reasons, the bad boys of Easter. And uh, last week we looked at the, the, the high priest who put Jesus on trial. Uh, his name was Joseph Caiaphas. And we looked at some of the, the background and why he may have behaved the way that he behaved. We look at the dynasty that he married into and the power and the control and the authority that he had and how Jesus came into the picture and he was a threat to Caiaphas and company. And this put Caiaphas into a position where he was like, no, it's, it's our temple, it's our nation, and if this Jesus succeeds then we're going to lose it all. And he could not come to that place of surrender and submission with things that he thought were his, and eventually he lost them all anyway. When he was deposed as the high priest, when the Romans came in in the year 70 and destroyed the temple and the city, uh, it was all gone. And so Caiaphas was the first bad boy. Uh, today we're looking at Judas Iscariot. Just back up uh, again, Sarah, one, one thing, just to mention it again for you. Same time, different location, yes? On April 1st, say it again. Same time, different location. Okay, so we're talking about Judas Iscariot today. And Judas would be second to Jesus he would be like the next known figure in the Easter story. Even people who know nothing about Easter, they know this name, Judas. Have any of you ever met anybody who is specifically named Judas? You, you, you do? Really? Well, that's rare. Like most of the time, I, I have never met a Judas. I've met a Jude I've met a Judah, but I have never met a Judas. Who in their right mind would name their child after the man who betrayed Jesus, right? They might think, well, if I name my child that, I might something strange might happen. I might put some kind of curse on the kid. I don't know. Who knows? So nobody wants to name their child Judas. Well, in the scripture, Judas is a very common name, actually. Uh, you see it. You see it as Judas. You see it as Judah. You see it as Jude. But it's really all the same name back in that time. Jesus had a half brother who was named Judas. We we read the book of Jude in the New Testament. That was written by Jesus's half brother, and you could say his name Judas just as simply as you could say it Jude. 
uh, when we read the Gospels, we see that there was another one of the, the 12 disciples who was also named Judas. But this particular Judas is Judas, the son of Iscariot. And he is famous. Why? Because he did what? Starts with a B. He betrayed Jesus himself. Why did he betray him? For, for what? Well, what did he get out of the betrayal? Do any of you remember? 30 pieces of silver. And this he goes down in infamy, you know, Judas. Now, the thing about him, we're very, very hard on him when we read the, the story and we say, oh, you know, shame on this man. And, and usually what happens in, in church circles and in the minds of church-going people or people of faith who are thinking through and that type of mindset is they say, well, did this guy have his faculties with him? Because there are a couple of places in the narrative that say that Satan entered Judas and that the devil had prompted Judas. And so people say, well, was he sort of predestined to, to commit this horrible act of betrayal or did he have his faculties with him? And, you know, was it fate? Was it predestination? Does he have free choice? Was he a Christian? Did he lose his salvation? Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? And we ask all of these kinds of questions. Um, I, would, I would submit to you that the scripture is not asking us to ask these questions. Uh, they're good questions to ask, but they're too deep. The, the first question that needs to be asked about Judas, and the most important question, why did he do it? Why? You say, well, it's easy. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. What's the problem? Or you could say, well, the devil prompted him and whatever, and so was the devil doing it through him? Well, what's the problem? Why are you asking the question? Well, when you take a deeper look, you will see there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. There's a little bit of something there wanting to use God to your own end. There's, a little, there's something of him in all of us. So we want to just answer the basic question, why did he do it? Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever made a deal, an arrangement with God? If you'll put that on the screen. Have you ever made an arrangement with God where you said, God, if you do this, I will do that. Is it, is it working, Sarah? It's frozen? Oh, Justin, maybe you could help her out and close it and restart it. It doesn't seem to be responding here. It seems frozen. Yeah, just put it on the on the the slide that says uh, uh, there we have been another another one there. Where are we? Yeah, have you ever tried to bargain with God? Is it working? Oh, there is no slide. I must have deleted. Okay, have you ever tried to bargain with Him? Have you ever tried to say, God, um, if I I have done this, and so you must do that. Uh, God, I go to church. God, I I pray. God, I read the Bible. God, I even give. Uh, God, I do all these things for you. So what are you going to do for me? Or God, if you get me out of this one, then I will serve you for the rest of my life. If you get me this girl, I will serve you for the rest of my life and into eternity. If you get me this guy, if I can get his attention, then Lord, I'm yours. Right? And we make these kinds of deals, these kinds of bargains with God. If you, then I will, or I have, and so then you 
must. Have you ever made that type of bargain with God? Well, why then did Judas do what he did? And I want to break it into three sections for you. The first one being expectation. Uh, expectation. And this is, this is critical for you to understand. There's no weird or unusual behavior from Judas Iscariot until the end of the story. You don't see him behave weird. You don't see him do bizarre things or things that run against the other disciples. You just see him with them. There's a couple of places at the beginning of the narrative that says, and Judas who would betray him. But you don't see how he betrayed him until the end of the story. So you're kind of waiting, watching, saying, well, when's this guy going to flip? When is his behavior going to change? And you don't see it until the end. So you say to yourself, well, what was it then that, 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 that caused this change to happen in this man? The first thing that you have to understand is expectation, expectation. If I were to ask you the question today, and you can shout out some answers, um, who, if someone said to you, who is Jesus Christ, what would you say? Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior yeah. Son of God, yeah. That's it? You all need to go to the 2-7 series, yeah. Lord and Savior, Son of God, Messiah, good. And what did he do? He, he was a man, lamb, okay, lamb who did what? Who died for our sins. Yeah, there we're going somewhere. Yeah, so he, he died for our sins. He did what else? He healed. He did miracles. These are the kinds of things that we say, right? And so this is when people say, who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? Those are the kinds of things that we say. Back in the first century, if you went and you asked people, who will the Christ be? Remember, we learned last week, Christ is not a last name. If Jesus were, uh, were an athlete, it wouldn't say Christ on the back of his jersey. It would say son of Joseph, probably, on the back of his jersey. Christ is a title. It's a Greek word for a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word was the Messiah, uh, if you transliterate that into English, okay? The, the Messiah. If you were to ask the people, who will the Messiah be? What will he do? None of the things that you just said, or virtually none of them, would be on their lips. None of them. It was a matter of expectation, of expectation. The first century Jew did not expect nor even desire a suffering Messiah. They weren't expecting that. They did not want that. And you first have to understand this reality if you're going to really answer the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? The first century Jew did not expect a Messiah to suffer, did not want a Messiah to suffer, and there are reasons for this. If you look even at their, their calendar, if you look at their celebrations, what you have in Judaism is a history of people persecuted and delivered. 
a history of people who are persecuted and then sin and then are delivered. It's a story of sin and redemption, persecution and redemption. And you see this in the modern, even in the modern feasts of Judaism, you see this. This is a people who some have said are arguably the most persecuted people and ethnicity on the face of the earth, the Jewish people. That's what many people say, and I would tend to agree I'm one of them, so I'm a little bit biased. Uh, but you're talking about people, and when they gather together and when they celebrate, it's God is a redeemer. God has redeemed us in the past. God will redeem us in the future. He will deliver us from persecution. He will deliver us from bondage. He will redeem us from our sin and our backsliding. This is the image that they have of who God is. You can see it in the Passover. You can see Moses and who is he? He's the deliverer of the Jewish people from bondage in Egypt. And he boldly, you know, parts the Red Sea and, and eventually Joshua would bring them into the promised land and they would be delivered. This is going to be celebrated right at Easter weekend. This is what the Passover is all about. It's the deliverance from Egypt. You see it in a spring festival called Purim. Uh, which has just passed, and this is a story of Esther. Do you remember Esther, the, the woman who would end up uh, the queen? She was a Jewish woman, and she saves the Jews from, from ethnic cleansing, if you will. Uh, Haman wanted to exterminate all of them because Mordecai would not bow down to him, and there's a, an amazing turn of events that happens, and once again, they're delivered. Some of you, you should celebrate Purim. They have, the, the sweets at Purim are amazing. There's a delight called Hamantashen, after Haman who got hanged, really. And they have this, this dessert called Hamantashen. It's exquisite. But the whole thing is about redemption and deliverance. You see it in the rebuilding of the walls and the, and the temple with Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and Zerubbabel and Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. Yes, God has delivered us once again. We've gotten back to our land. We got our temple back. We got our city back. We got our walls back. Yes, yes, yes. God is a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's the one who brings us out of darkness and persecution. The closest event to the time of Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot is another feast that the Jews celebrate. It's the Feast of Hanukkah or dedication. We see it. Jesus acknowledged it in the New Testament. And this is the story, again, of deliver deliverance where the, the, the Seleucid ruler, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant God in the flesh. He was a wicked, wicked, nasty ruler who did abominable, unmentionable things to the Jewish people, persecuted them violently, put scores and scores of them to death. And you have a, a story of a, of a revolt and guerrilla warfare by a man named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, Josephus writes about this in the Maccabean Wars. And they would, yes, they would take the temple back. 
they would, they would light the flame of the candelabra, and the story goes, they didn't have enough oil for it to stay lit, but it supernaturally stayed lit for whatever it is, seven days, eight days. Yes, God delivered us again. He redeemed us. He brought us back from persecution and darkness and all these things. And when they're thinking about the Messiah who would come, they are thinking this man will be a military powerhouse, a political powerhouse. He will deliver us from bondage. He will take us out of this Roman oppression, just as Judas Maccabeus did, just as Moses did, so shall the Messiah be. He will be a deliverer. He will be a savior in the sense that he will conquer our enemies. And you see plenty of prophecy about this in the Old Testament. Plenty. I mean, read the book of Revelation. It really echoes many of the, the sayings of the major and the minor prophets. What do you see? You see Jesus in the book of Revelation as a military a, a powerhouse. You see him coming in and defeating sin and defeating evil once and for all. And this was the expectation of the first century Jew. And this is the expectation of the modern Jew today, especially the modern conservative Jew. But they say nothing and know nothing of a dying Messiah, of a suffering Savior. This would have been a very, very unusual thought back then. And you see it even in the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, verses 26 to 27. This is Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And he appears on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking with a couple of, uh, of people there. And they're telling him the news. You know, they're saying, well, they're talking about Jesus. And they say, you sentenced to death. But we're, we heard he was alive. And, you know, where? have you been like this is the big news coming out of Jerusalem and they don't realize that it's Jesus and he says how foolish you are how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the Messiah have to suffer he says these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself they had to be taught don't you realize the Christ had to first suffer it was a foreign thought to them Paul said to the Corinthians Paul a Jewish man Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? Because they were not expecting the Messiah to suffer. They're expecting the Messiah to conquer. And this is what Judas wanted, and this is what the disciples wanted, and this is what the crowds wanted. Jesus, take off your rabbi robe and show the S for Savior, not Superman, on your chest, and conquer, conquer, and take over, and redeem us once and for all, for you are the Messiah. This was the expectation. But to put that Savior on a cross, to crucify him in shame, 
was not the expectation. And you see it over and over again in the Gospels whenever Jesus talks about his upcoming death and his upcoming resurrection. They look at him and, and they're shocked. They're sad. They're, they don't comprehend what he's saying. They're afraid to ask him. You see, there is never a, oh, yes, we knew that was coming. We're so excited that you're going to die on the cross for us. You never see that. You see a reaction of, what? You're going to, what? You can't die. You, you, you can't leave us. Um, you're the Savior. You're the King. You're the Messiah. And the, you, you see this constant reaction from them um, that they did not want this to happen. Expectation. The expectation of Judas was the same. The expectation of the disciples was the same. The expectation of the crowds was the same. And some of you, you're thinking to yourself, how come they're so, how come they don't get it? Did they not read Isaiah 53? You know, many of you, you work with Jewish people and you say, how come they don't get it? They're the ones who wrote the book. How come they can't read? He was wounded for our transgressions. In Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. How come they can't see that? Okay, so just, just to let you know, many of them don't read the passage, and the ones that do, they will say, well, Isaiah's talking about himself. Well, he's talking about Israel in a, in a spiritual sense. He's not talking about Jesus. When you, when you read the Gospels, you can see there's some people who caught it. Uh, Matthew seems to catch it. He's a Jewish man. He seems to see that this is talking about Jesus. John seems to catch it. He's a Jewish man. Paul's a Jewish man. He seems to catch it. But for the most part, you see nothing in the, in the Old Testament, absolutely nothing in the Old Testament that interprets this passage as referring to the Messiah. It's only when we see the gospel story and the epistles that we say, ah, it's referring to Jesus. Remember the Ethiopian uh, eunuch who's on the, on the road from Jerusalem and he picks up the passage from Isaiah 53 and he's reading it and Philip, uh, the, the Grecian Jew, supernaturally has an encounter with the man and he says to him, do you know who you're reading about? And the Ethiopian says, I don't know. Who's he talking about? Who's Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? And Philip says, let me tell you who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus the Christ. That's who. So for us to think that they had the same expectation that we understand today, uh-uh-uh. And Judas certainly did not have that expectation. He wanted the conqueror. He wanted the ruler. He wanted the revolt. He wanted Hanukkah on steroids is what he wanted. Not only was he motivated by expectation, he's motivated by selfishness. There's a little tidbit in the gospel story that we only see in John chapter 12. And we see it uh, in a story where Jesus is anointed uh, by a woman, and uh, we'll get into that in just a few moments. But in that particular story, we have a comment made by Judas Iscariot. When this woman takes this, this alabaster jar of pure nard, 
which is um, a very, very expensive perfume in the day. Some people today say it would have been 25 times more expensive than the most expensive perfumes of today. Some people say the, the smell was so strong that Jesus would have smelled of the stuff even when he was on trial, even when he was crucified, even when they were uh, preparing his body for burial, he would have smelled of this nard. And she goes and she she breaks this, this alabaster container. The only way you could get the nard out was to break it, and so you had to use all of it. And she pours it on him and anoints him, and there's a kind of a shock in the room. And people are saying, look at all this money that's wasted. Couldn't something be done with this money? Couldn't it have been sold and you know given to the poor? Uh, but we're told in John, and in John only, in verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, of course. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Wow, it's a lot of money. And here's the verse, verse 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Ah, As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. Whoa, this guy spends three years of his life face-to-face with Jesus as one of his disciples, and he's a stealing treasurer. That's what he is. It would be as if the little basket was making its way this morning through the aisles and one of you were picking money out rather than putting money in. Um, I, I serve a couple of days at the, the little thrift store uh, as part of Mission Nouvelle Génération. Some of you volunteer there. Jason has been there. Diana, if you're here, she comes in on Tuesdays, and sometimes you, you know people come in and they help. And when I, when I wanted to, I told them, well, I can do that. I can give you a couple of days. And they said, we're looking for someone reliable. And what they meant was, we're looking for someone who won't steal the money. And then the guy said, well, you're a pastor. I guess you qualify, right? We didn't say it like that. But looking for someone trustworthy so that none of the money is stolen. How can it be that a man would spend that much time with Jesus and still help himself to the money bag? And it seems like in John's comment that other people knew. John certainly knew. So Judas had a reputation He's in it for himself, and he's in it for a little bit of money on the side. So not only does he want Jesus to trigger a revolt, most probably, a rebellion, he's also a very selfish individual. I've heard of one story, a large church, uh, where the treasurer actually did steal hundreds and thousands of dollars over several years, almost went to prison for it. Uh, Imagine how people can be supposedly so close to God and yet their hearts so far. Uh, But Judas was driven, certainly, we can say that he was selfish. But he wasn't the only one. His, His view would be somewhat similar to the view of the disciples, just a little bit more extreme. Because Judas is looking for what's in it for him, in a very selfish way, granted, but didn't the disciples do the same? Did they not have an attitude of, well, God, what have you done for me lately? You know, a bit like if you're a Canadian's hockey fan, right? I mean, if they're, if they're winning, great, but what have you done for me lately, <laughs> right? And lately, 
not too much. <laughs> so people are pretty upset at the great Montreal Canadians. There's a story in, uh, in Matthew chapter 19 and in a couple of uh, the other Gospels, uh, and it talks about um, uh, what we call the rich young ruler. Remember the story? This, this guy with tremendous wealth, he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you have to keep the commandments. And he says, well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you honor your father and your mother, you love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says back to Jesus, get this, all these I have kept. Wow, he thinks you're a pretty good guy. And he says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. After all, you're rich and you will have treasure in heaven. So he's pushing this man, challenging the one thing that he knew that he couldn't give up, and that was his wealth. When the young man heard this, uh, he went away sad because he had great wealth. No, Jesus is not saying to you, if you're wealthy, give away all your stuff. He's saying it to this particular man in this particular instance because he knows that this is the stumbling block in particular to this man. Hopefully it isn't for you if you're wealthy. Uh, in verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's difficult. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. It can be a stumbling block for the rich, especially if they love their riches more than they love God. And the disciples say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And here's Peter's comment. Peter, Mr., you know, comments when he shouldn't comment. Look what he says. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? God, I've done all this for you. I read the Bible, I pray, I go to church, I tithe, I'm a nice person. I give up my, in our case, Saturday mornings, I should be sleeping in. I'm trying to be a good, godly person. All this I have done for you, what have you done for me? What will there be for us? Jesus' answer is actually quite gracious. He talks about how those people who gave up all those things, those disciples, that they'll actually sit in judgment uh, of some sort in the future. But Peter, thinking about what's in it for me, so was Judas, just a little bit more pronounced. What's in it for me? Well, a little bit of money on the side, a little bit out of the offering. Who's going to know? Apparently, John knew. Uh, he wrote about it. But Judas is pushed over the edge. The, the rest of the disciples, what do you see when you read the Gospels? You see, well, when Jesus is arrested, they all turn away from him. They all turn and flee. Uh, even Peter, Peter, he says to Jesus, I'll never deny you. Right? First, he tells, he tells Jesus, uh, when Jesus talks about going to the cross, he says, never, never, never. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me. Satan, wow, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You've got devil thoughts in you, Peter. You're trying to take me away from the cross. You're trying to get me to, to, to do things a different way. Those are devil thoughts, Peter. Wow, it's a striking thing that he says to Peter there. Uh, but what do the disciples do? What does Peter do? They, they turn and run when he's arrested. What does Peter do? He said, well, I'm going to sneak up to the courtyard of the high priest 
I'm going to try and overhear what's going on in the trial with Joseph Caiaphas and what happens. Jesus' prediction, you will deny me, Peter, comes to pass. And Peter says, I don't know him. And they say, but your accent gives you away. You're, you sound like a Galilean. You sound like you're one of them. No, no, no. I don't know him. And the rooster crows. Remember the story? And in Luke it says, and the Lord looked straight at Peter. Wow. The look. I mean, imagine the look that he got. But even Peter comes back. The rest of the disciples come back. Why does Judas not come back? People say, well, 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 it's because the devil entered him and he couldn't control himself. Well, could Peter control himself? Jesus said to Peter at one point, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Jesus looked at Peter and called him Satan to his face. So can we say that Judas somehow didn't have control of his will and his motivation when he went through this? Well, I'm not so sure. What was it that pushed him over the edge where he finally said, that's enough. I'm going to the dark side. I'm going to flip over to the dark side. What was it? Well, it's an action uh, of compassion from Jesus that leads Judas to this action. And you see it in, in uh, uh, Matthew. You see it in Mark. Uh, you see it in John. And again, this is the anointing story. Uh, in Matthew, we're told it's at the house of a man named Simon, who apparently was a leper. That's all we know about him. And again, this woman comes with this alabaster jar, very expensive perfume. People are saying, why this waste? Why this waste? In particular, Judas says it. And, and Jesus' reply is interesting. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Why? Where are you going? When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Remember, they don't want a suffering Messiah. They don't want a dying Messiah. Judas doesn't want a dying Messiah. She did it to prepare me for burial. What's he talking about? Where is he going? This is not a good thing. If we want a rebellion, if we want to overthrow the, the Romans, if we want Judas Maccabeus on steroids and Hanukkah on steroids, this is going in the wrong direction. What's wrong with this guy talking about dying and being a martyr? What kind of leader is he? Maybe he is duplicitous. Maybe he is a weak leader. Maybe he is an imposter just like uh, the religious folks think he is. He's talking about dying. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. A remarkable piece of prophecy there because Many, many people know this story of this woman who anointed Jesus. And, of course, it's recorded for us in John's gospel, permanently preserved. Then one of the twelve. It was that anointing that seems to have tipped the scales. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. One of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests who remember from last week, they're under the authority of Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest. So if you go to the chief priest, it's like you're going to the top guy. And he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? I've had enough, is what he's saying. Uh, he's, he's flipped 
This thing, uh, this act of compassion, this, this talking about his death over and over again. And Judas, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Uh, many scholars say that that price, 30 pieces of silver, was the price of a common slave. You see it predicted uh, in Zechariah chapter 11, I think it is. 30 pieces of silver, the price they have put on my head, the Lord says. A measly 30 pieces of silver. It's interesting that Judas didn't say, no, 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 it's not enough. I want more than 30. I'm going to cough up the whereabouts of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to tell you where he is, where there's no crowds. I want more than 30 pieces. Nope. He doesn't barter with the chief priests at all. He just takes the 30 pieces, a relatively small amount, a mere pittance compared to the amount that was in that alabaster jar. He'll settle for a measly 30 pieces of silver to sell out his, his uh, loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth. Amazing how easily he is bought. So they counted for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over? It could very well be, and you'll see this in a moment, that the reason why Judas did what he did was to try and force the hand of Jesus, to try and put him into a position where he would have no choice. He would be coincé in French. You know, he would be stuck between a rock and a hard place, and he would have to trigger the rebellion that Judas wanted. He would have to take off his rabbi robe and show his superman, his super savior on his chest, and then he would be, you know, Hanukkah on steroids. It could be that this is what Judas was thinking. You see, later on, Judas attends the famous Last Supper. And the Bible says at the beginning of John that the devil had prompted him, had already prompted him. And you see, during this Last Supper, this Passover meal, Jesus knows that there's a betrayer in the room. As if, I mean, why would Judas be so foolish as to think that Jesus wouldn't know? But he attends the supper, and Jesus starts saying, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all shocked. Who is it? Who is it? Now, just, just, just pause for one moment. I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where maybe it was a meeting that you had uh, with a group of people. And um, there was something that you were intending to do. Maybe it was a good thing. But the person running the meeting knew that you were going to do it. They knew it was as if they were reading your mind. And you don't want anybody else in the room to know, but you know that the dude running the meeting knows. And what happens? Your heart starts beating out of your chest because, ah, how did the person know I've been uncovered? I don't want anyone else to know. Well, in this case, you don't have a good thing going on. You have a betrayal that's going on. And Judas, his number is up because G Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the rest of the disciples, if you're them, you're probably thinking, who is it? Because when we know who it is, that's it. Lights out. Nobody betrays our Jesus, right? But G Jesus doesn't really identify specifically that it is Judas. It's as if he allows it to happen. 
And we're told as we read it in, uh, in John's gospel, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me, John 13 and 21. Disciples stared at one another at a loss to know what he, what he meant. One of them, whom Jesus loved, this is John, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him, ask him which one he means. And so he says to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in, into the dish. And he dips it, the piece of bread, he gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Wow, very cryptic words. What you are about to do, Jesus says to Judas, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to them. And since Judas had charge of the money, remember he's a treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go out and buy bread that was needed for the festival to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And he's done. He's out of the picture, at least for the time being. Uh, he is discovered at this last supper and then finally, he seized with remorse, Judas. And this is why I would argue, and many, many uh, commentators would say, indeed, he was trying to trigger a revolt to get him arrested because when Judas sees, and we see this in Matthew's gospel in particular, when he sees that the chief priests and the high priest Caiaphas have got Jesus to the point where he's going to appear before none other than Pontius Pilate. Judas knows exactly why he would do that, why they would do that, because they want him publicly executed. The Jews could not legally publicly execute anyone. They could do it illegally by trying to stone them as per their law, but the, the, in, a, in a public sense, so that everyone would see they needed the Romans to do that. And Judas, it seems, when he sees that that's what's going to happen, he immediately is seized with remorse. Early in the morning, Matthew 27, all the chief priests, the elders of the people, made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, they led him away, they handed him over to Pontius Pilate. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. He's not fighting. He's not taking off his rabbi robe. He's condemned. He's going to face death. He was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, the elders. He says, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. Well, what did you think he was before? Guilty blood? It's as if in the, he, he was thinking, yes, he's a, he's a liar, he's a duplicitous leader, and I'm going to force his hand, but now I see that he is innocent. Now I see that he's walking right into his death, and I have betrayed an innocent man. And he's seized with tremendous regret, remorse. He tries to give the money back, and they say to him, what is that to us? That's your responsibility, Judas. That's your responsibility, and Judas could not get over it. You know the end of the story. He takes his own life almost immediately. He's driven over the edge, and eventually he loses even his own life. What is the application for us today? When our relationship with God, don't miss this, when our relationship with God is poorly defined, 
If you base your relationship with God, I've done all this for you. What are you going to do for me? You know why we do that, friends? Some of it is because of bad preaching. We talk about a relationship with God from the front, uh, and pastors talk about it all the time. We use this verbiage all the time. It's not that the verbiage is unfounded, uh, but many times when people hear relationship, this is what they think of. Well, it's give and take. I do for this person, this person does for me. Uh, I'll be nice to her. If she's nice to me, I'll be nice to him. If he's nice to me, and it's a kind of a give and take, and well, we compromise and we try and make each other happy. It's a relationship. This is not how you're to found your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is based on the fact that he saves you from your sin. <laughs> he saves you from the penalty and power of sin. And on this basis, you have communion with him. If your relationship is not based on that as a foundation, then it's, well, God, what have you done for me lately? And we're like the Montreal Canadiens fans. And we're a little bit like Judas. And we're a little bit like the apostles. Where it's what is in it for us. God owes us nothing. He has reached down and saved us from our sin. And taken us out of bondage to sin. And made us his children. This is what he has done. Don't define your relationship with God on everything else. If you get healed, that's good. That's gravy. If you get a better job when you prayed for it, that's good. But remember, that's gravy. It, those are all graces and things that God gives to you. Sometimes he may give them to you. Sometimes he may not. But you base your relationship with him on the fact that he has reached down and saved you. When our relationship with God is poorly defined, we are responsible for the outcome of the journey. The chief priest said to Judas, that's your responsibility. We are responsible in the end. Uh, but when our relationship with God is based on surrender to him and saying, God, I come to you as a sinner. You need to show your grace and mercy to me and redeem me and save me. This is surrender then who's responsible? God is, not you anymore. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Philippians that Paul wrote that summarizes this. And if, the, if uh, the, the, our dynamic duo could come, they're going to sing one song, I think, Good, Good Father for us before we leave today. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, beautiful verse that summarizes this. Being confident of this, Paul said, that he who began a good work in you when you surrender to God fully, he begins that good work in you. He who began a good work in you will push you until you complete it. He will, he will grind you until you complete it yourself. Is that what the text says? No. He who, who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will be faithful. He will carry it on to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus, it's him who carries the payload when you surrender. But when you rebel against God, it's you, friends, who are responsible. Go ahead and start playing in the background. An application for you that I have seen many, many times, especially in Pentecostal circles. Many, many times where people base their relationship with God on a system where they say, well, God, if I quote the right scripture... If I pray the right prayers, if I give the right money, 
then I'll be healthy and I'll be wealthy and I'll be wise. We have a theological construct for this. It's called the Word Faith Movement. And it really is a system where what we're saying is, God, what have you done for me lately? I will do all of these things, but now you are obligated to do this for me. No, friends, remember, God has fulfilled his obligation in the cross and in the empty tomb. The rest of it are graces and mercies that he gives to us as a foretaste, as as a trailer for what is to come in the end. Do you understand that, friends? Do you understand how important that is? That's what the Easter season is all about. The grace of God that has appeared to us, that has reached down and saved us. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and let them sing this with me.